Welcome to Spotlight's Extra Time from Stile Antico. This podcast accompanies our series of films released in spring 2021, shining a spotlight on four of our favourite pieces of music from the Renaissance. With the help of expert academic guests and musical illustrations, we explore the history and context of these works. In this podcast, we'll be digging a bit deeper with some extra material. Check out our Acast page for some more recommended listening. You can view the videos at www.vimeo.com forward slash on demand forward slash spotlights. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Stile Antico Spotlights, a series where we shine a light on four of our favourite pieces of music from the Renaissance. Each week, we'll be joined by an academic expert to explore the historical and musical context behind these masterpieces with musical illustrations along the way. Every episode will end with a full performance of our chosen spotlight piece, newly recorded for this series. I'm Cara Curran and I'm delighted to be joined by Jonathan Hanley and Simon Ditchfield to talk about Serge Propera Amica Mea by Palestrina, one of his most famous settings of the Song of Songs texts. We will be exploring who Palestrina was and why he is considered one of the most important figures of Renaissance music. We will examine the popularity and varying styles of Song of Songs settings by Palestrina and his contemporaries and put this remarkable composer and his work in their historical context. Pierluigi de Palestrina was born in his hometown of Palestrina in the Papal States of Italy in 1525. I think it's easy to forget that at this time Italy wasn't one unified country but in fact it was a, a collection of kingdoms and city-states which all had their distinctive flavour. So Palestrina was growing up in a Roman and papally influenced area and in fact even was a choir boy in Rome at the Church of Santa Maria Maggiore, one of the very important churches in the city before returning to Palestrina to work at the cathedral there. He finally moved to Rome in 1551 as Maestro di Capella at the Capella Giulia, the choir which sang for public worship at St Peter's Basilica for the Pope. He actually only lasted there for about three years because an incoming Pope changed the regime and told him that he wasn't allowed to work there anymore as he was a married man. The choir was usually made up of priests. After that, he worked at St John Lateran and Santa Maria Maggiore churches in Rome, as well as working for some important patrons like the Duke of Ferrara, and Cardinal Ippolito d'Este, before returning to the Capella Giulia again in 1574 and remaining there for the rest of his career. When he wasn't performing and singing at these churches, he was composing an enormous amount of music. He wrote over 100 masses, over 300 motets, and much more besides. He's among the towering figures of Renaissance music, alongside composers such as Lassus or Bird. But the reason that Palestrina is so revered is that he was seen to pioneer and master the stile antico, or the uh, ars perfecta compositional technique. This compositional technique emphasised the efficiency of polyphony, dissonance and ornamentation, and always the beauty of line. 
I remember as a chorister, I used to hate singing Palestrina, saying it used to just go up and down one note. But that's exactly what he does. Palestrina avoids big leaps in the line and uses stepwise motion as much as possible. You can see this when comparing uh, composers such as Lassus in the way that they um, word paint in, in, in their compositions. The pinnacle of Palestrina's style can be seen in his settings of the Song of Songs for five parts. Here, he uses all of the trademark Palestrina techniques, beautiful line, controlled use of dissonance, and simple harmonies, but with rhythmic excitement and textual variation. He has a really detailed attention to the text, which is completely clear throughout. So, we meet Palestrina working in the second half of the 16th century in Rome, a scene which had been dominated by Franco-Flemish composers such as Josquin, Villert and de Rore. What do you think it was about these texts that made them perhaps popular with counter-reformationists? Um, I think in a way, they're both, firstly, they're very much, they're very traditional in the sense that they are linked to, you know, the Song of Songs was very much linked liturgically to the cult of the Virgin Mary, uh, which has been a sort of a, a, a filo rosso, as the Italians would say, a leitmotif throughout the whole of, uh, of Roman Catholic devotion. Um, and uh, also, uh, it fitted very well into a sort of tropological um, understanding, metaphorical, symbolic understanding of the bride, not in the physical, sexual, sensual sense, but as a soul. Um, and this kind of engagement of all the emotions is something that particularly the, the, this period of the Counter-Reformation is associated with. Uh, and so always grist to the mills, There's even something which to us is, is, is some pure sex in a way, um, to the audience then would have uh, provoked them into thinking in terms of, uh, of spiritual love. And it's quite interesting because Palestrina actually writes that in the dedication to the books. He says it's not about love's alien to the Christian profession. But I think that's probably addressed not to the Pope, but wouldn't you tell the Pope that? The Pope knew his Bible, but it's more, I think, tell the readers and reassure the people who are buying uh, because these would have been sold, I mean, uh, uh, as I know we talked about this on other occasions, the, the importance of, uh, of the printing of music uh, and how Rome was particularly good, the printers at printing these huge choir books. And so, many of, so, so much of the proportion of his, of his output were masses. Uh, and one of the reasons he's always short of cash is he's always trying to get these very expensive editions out. Uh, and he's very particular also. So in fact, he does, unlike so many musicians, he doesn't go to Venice with printing. Venice is, is the capital of printing uh, for the Catholic world, Catholic counterpart to Frankfurt. Uh, and it's, um, but he stays, for what, except for one period when uh, there, there are no printers that do mu print music uh, in Rome. He resolutely stays with Rome. But of course, with the, um, uh, these motets and uh, magicals, you could actually have to go back to the part, part book format. Um, and I think sort of you needed therefore to reassure the sort of the great and the good of Roman families who were then you know, putting on these performances, not seeing themselves, but paying for 
uh, usually paying for musicians to come in uh, and singers to come in and, and perform them, is almost to, to, to reassure them that they're not, they're actually, they are being uh, appropriate and they are observing decorum. Um, and I'm sure that's what, that, in a sense, that's where the, sen the censorship comes. It's actually people who you've got to almost reassure your publics that what they're doing is plugging into uh, what is very uh, cerebral uh, and emotional engagement with um, their faith. So to have one of these big sort of folio copies in your heart, you know, that would be quite a sort of status thing. The big ones were for the churches. Right. But the uh, smaller ones, which I think the Song of Songs would have lent themselves to, you, 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 you could have done, because you, you know, they were in small quarto-sized part books. Um, and so um, the, and, and I'm, I'm imagining that, that the, um, the preface would have been reproduced in some format, even in a small format. Obviously, the Pope gets a presentation, big one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for the rest, it's, um, I mean, it's what um, historians of the book have now got very, very alive, live to, which is sort of the uh, paratextual dimensions of, of text, which actually have, like, like the dedications um, and any other ma matter around about telling people how, they were, how these texts were framed at the time. And so in that, in that sense, I think we should, we should take the, the letter to the Pope as a way of Palestrina saying to his audiences and his purchasers of part books you know, that, that um, what they were buying was orthodox, proper, and actually rather fashionable. Uh, but it's very funny because there was at least one scholar who accuses um, Palestrina of, of hypocrisy. And why did he bring it up? Because it was, no, it was already known. Yeah. But I think actually he was generally very devout. So, talking about Palestrina being the saviour of music, yeah. um, this comes from the conversations possibly to do with the Council of Trent and the Counter-Reformation. Could you sort of put in plain English for me what, what that actually okay. was? I'll do my best. Uh, for an event that uh, lasted 18 years, uh, I suppose it has generated uh, quite, a lot, quite a big literature, uh, but also quite a few misunderstandings. It began the meeting uh, of bishops and theologians uh, international ecumenical meeting, which is one of the ecumenical councils, uh, opened in, in 1545, uh, and it meets, you know, not continuously, meets in three different sessions, uh, and finally closes in December 1563. And very interestingly, music is only discussed in that final, in the final half of that final session. Uh, and this is true of quite a lot of things that relate directly to worship. So, for example, also the cult of saints, uh, also uh, the, 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 the reformed liturgical books. These are all discussed right at the end. It's interesting that now there's been you know, a lot of rethinking of what Trent meant for uh, literature, what Trent meant for art, and what Trent meant for music. So all three, and I think there's now a consensus of opinion among scholars that actually um, 
for all the practitioners of these arts, they almost breathe a sigh of relief after Trenthing. Right now we know, okay, it's been hanging over us, what, what the church is gonna do about all these things because of the Reformation, and now the lines have been drawn, they're suitably vague and, all, and, and open to interpretation, but I think they permit an awful lot. Uh, so there wasn't much self-centering that had to go on with artists and musicians around the time, do you think? I mean, there are, there are one or two notorious cases, but in the, on the whole, uh, um, artists and um, are left to get on with it, and um, musicians, um, because in a sense they already know the rules. And of course also the real censors are not uh, people uh, like the Inquisition. The real censors in a way are the patrons. What do the patrons want? Uh, and Palestrina basically worked for the, for the Pope for most of his career, didn't he? So I suppose he's not going to write anything that flies in the face of that. He knew what they wanted. I uh, knew what was wanted. So, so this story about Palestrina writing the, the Papi Marcelli uh, to, to, to show how he can sort of adhere to Catholic ideals isn't to say that you didn't save church music necessarily, but that, that these Catholic ideals were perhaps known about but weren't decreed by the Council of Trent. Well, yes, I think the, I think the interesting thing there is, is, is really that, um, I mean, effect, effectively, um, I think musicians and artists both, and even literature, you know, writers, breathed a sigh of relief when Trent finally pronounced or didn't pronounce. I mean, art historians recently have realized that sort of actually, that finally, you know, artists could then knew more or less what, what were the, the main parameters within which they could work. They could go back to being sensuous, but as long as it was sensuous for, you know, we could look at some of the work of someone like, um, uh, Federico Barocci with lovely soft colors and it's very, very, you know, quite sexy skin tones and everything, but they're all for a religious purpose to prove, you know, very much the, the kind of sweet eloquence, the modo suave of someone like Neri. And Neri, you know, as we know from his, from the uh, testimonies to his canonization trial, he used to sort of sit in, in sort of ecstasy, gazing at the Barocci altarpieces in the Chiesa Nuova. Uh, and they were, they were depicting scenes in the life, life of, of the Virgin. Um, and um, similarly, um, the recent conclusion is that you know, the, the counter-reformation actually gives a lot of space to uh, religious writers, particularly women. Um, and, and, and now I think they're all saying, well, actually the musicians thought we, we can get on with it now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I think really there are very few cases, if any, of uh, um, artists who actually um, really self-censor or because of, there's a very famous case of Veronese who, who apparently um, had the, had the, the, um, uh, the fa this famous picture in, I think it's in Santa uh, Giorgio Maggiore in, in, in Venice um, of um, the Last Supper, but it appears uh, in, in a huge sort of tableau of lots of people performing monkeys and God knows what else. And he's just pulled up on the idea this is possibly not appropriate, distracts from the main central story. So they just call it uh, Dinner at the House of Levi. <laughs> that's fine. But that's, the, that's about the only time we've got an example of where 
a, a well-known artist is, is hauled before the Inquisition and told, this is what you've got to do. And the way they do it is just describe, be described. Just call it something else. <laughs> Precisely why Rome is so dynamic is that it, it, it's always the, the leadership is always changing. Mm -hmm. It's always basically ruled by old men in a hurry. So basically, uh, and this is basically what's happened at the moment. You know, the conservatives in the papacy are just waiting for Francis to go because they know that these guys only got elected in their late seventies. Yeah. So people keep their head down. So you know, Julius III, who first gives um, well imposes um, Palestrina on the Capella Julia, sorry, on the Sistine Chapel. Uh, Choir. He um, then dies, and Paul uh, IV comes in and says, "You can't have a married person in this choir." So out he goes. Uh, he wasn't meant to be a very good singer anyway, as you probably know. And then um, the next guy comes in, Pius IV, who's much more liberal, to use a modern anachronistic term, uh, and he's all for beauty and all stuff. And then Pope Pius the, the, the fifth comes in, and he's, he's He's a throwback to Paul IV, and he was very much severe. And he's the one who tries to start refrescuing uh, Michelangelo. And then we have uh, Gregory, which is basically pragmatic. Let's be, let's, you know, he, he commissions the first through designed polychrome marble um, um, chapels since the classical period in the Capella Gregoriana. Uh, and no expenses spared. He's really into beauty for, again, for magnificence. Yeah. And so all of those popes in what, sort of 20, 30 years? Um, in those cases, it's 20 years. Yeah. It's a little over 20 years, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all happening. And so, of course, you've got, and for every pope that comes in, it usually means there are chances, quite often from their own area, or where the pope comes from. There's a constant turnover of, of, of uh, people, who, you know, from literary people to musicians to art, and to mostly, it has to be said, uh, artists and literary people. The musicians tend to not to move around so much. Although, of course, as you know, um, uh, Berlusconi is, is interesting in being the first of the non-Flemish um, sort of Kappelmeisters. Uh, and he then breaks that, that, that sort of um, hold, stranglehold, um, and, they, and, they, and the North Europeans go out of fashion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and we get a reverse there, so we get sort of Orlando Lasso going up to Munich. And it's Marenzio as well, isn't it? He's an Italian, and then he gets exported into Central Europe, I think, as well. That's right. Yeah. 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 Is that part Italian. of the thing to kind of, you know, keep that sort of Roman Catholicism to make it more international as well, or is that just a coincidence, do you think? Or? I think it's, it really is. I mean, Rome is the, is, is the sort of model, cultural model, uh, in Europe from essentially 1570s. Uh, until the 1650s, and and so you know, so as late as the 1650s, people like Louis XIV, they want Bernini to come to Paris. And it's only really at the, well, the end of the of the Seicent or the 17th century that, that, that then the torch, as it were, passes to France. Mm -hmm. 
and France becomes in, until the Napoleonic Wars. The really, cultural ideal. The begins. cultural ideal. Yeah. But throughout, and of course the thing is, you know, England is not accepted from that. Look at Inigo Jones, look at so many other things, the passions. Um, they cope that Rome is the place to look at. was working mostly for uh, for churches and also later in his madrigals and motets he's working for perhaps um, smaller households, cardinal's households or noble households or even perhaps well-off bourgeois households uh, as well as meet as well as people who meet as members of these confraternities. Um, I think uh, you know, the wider context you know, is within the music of the streets. I mean, the, 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 the Counter-Reformation had a sort of multi-sonic dimension. And I think that um, although Palestrina was working, he was an interior decorator, so to speak, in this kind of, I think that uh, we can't discount that wider awareness of music. Uh, and the fact, as I said, alluded to in this description, that there would be people from the Papal Chapel, Papal chapels, Nicola Giulia and the Sistine Chapel, uh, who would then, individual instrumentalists would, would, and vocalists, would join these processions and they'd, be, and they'd actually be paid by the local confraternities to do this. And then there would be, as I said, these, these from the musical establishments of the, uh, the, um, the trumpet, trumpet players uh, of the, um, com the company of the castle, which is kind of Castle San Angelo, the papal fortress, come treasury, come archive. And then there'll be the um, uh, drummers um, and other further wind instruments of the uh, of, of the people of Rome, the, the civic centre uh, on the Capitoline Hill, and they would would sort of join in as well and provide um, um, the musical accompaniment. But this, and of course, there are also the, the whole lives of the popes, of the the coronation and the possessor, which is this extraordinary ceremony going through the city, and they all require music. So the people who were listening to certain service to services, uh, their ears have been attuned by by this music. Uh, and by really the music of Catholicism. And of course, music was a dimension of, of, of um, uh, worship that was, in this form, peculiarly Catholic. Okay, we've got Lutheran hymns, we've got uh, uh, some metrical psalms of Calvinists, but nothing quite like uh, the range of genres that, that the Catholicism um, required and promoted. Uh, and this is very much something that Palestrina was the right person at the right time to be able to take advantage in his own niche within this wider musical culture. So there are so many opportunities for musicians. Uh, it's quite remarkable and you don't get that, although Venice is uh, twice as big demographically uh, and, Ven and Naples three times as big as Rome, um, none of them have uh, musical establishments that, that anywhere reach uh, what is available in Rome. And I would say that there's nowhere else uh, on the planet uh, at the time that offers so much to musicians. Mm -hmm.